Hello and welcome to episode 60 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in foggy San Francisco. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Washington, D.C. is Ben Olson. Ben, how you been? Uh, I've been good. It's uh, cloudy and foggy here as well. We just had hail a couple days ago, which was bizarre, too. Whoa. Um, like big golf ball size? Denting uh, cars? Not size? golf ball, but pretty like maybe half a golf ball. Still, it's just weird. It's been warm, really warm, and then it gets cold and starts raining. It's just bizarre weather. So. Huh. That's strange. Yeah, I'm spoiled by LA. I was just down in Los Angeles for 10 days and taught my first class down there and everything. And um, it was actually chilly for LA, which was like 70 degrees. And uh, But then now to be back in San Francisco and it's just like fog bank and <laughs> 55 degrees. You know? Yeah, yeah. I can see why you like LA better, maybe? Oh, I mean, LA is just like perfect weather every single day basically that's how it goes so yeah not that san francisco is bad by any stretch but uh i'm getting old i guess and i'm i'm appreciating like the 10 degrees warmer that la offers it's nice plus you have a motorcycle right so i do have a motorcycle yeah you know and riding when it's at all wet is not awesome so <laughs> uh, <laughs> not awesome no, yeah, no worse than that right yeah well i mean even like it's just if it's even foggy at all then the roads get a little slick and so then mm. it's just like well you don't it's not that enjoyable to be thinking about the possibility of dying all the time yeah so, um <laughs> la with the drier um drier roads and nice weather to be out and about on the bike is uh yeah it's it's nice it's fun Cool. So uh, quick kind of teaser agenda for today's show. We have uh, one question from uh, a far-flung listener in a remote fishing village in Myers Chuck, Alaska. And uh, kind of a non-traditional student has a bunch of questions about the LSAT and law school applications. I think that'll be kind of fun. We're going to do a couple questions from the logical reasoning from the June 2007 test. We're slowly working our way through that section I recorded an interview with Jeff Todd in Denver, Colorado. Jeff is a writer for Major League Baseball TradeRumors.com, and he went to Harvard Law School before that and was a practicing lawyer for four or five years. So I think he's interesting. Um, we go through his whole you know, educational career and how he got into law school and Harvard Law and what law practice was like and then how he made this crazy transition uh, leaving law entirely and doing something else. So we'll end with that today. Cool. I do have an announcement, which I've been teasing for, oh, six months now or more, but uh, it's for real. The Fox LSAT Logic Games playbook is for sale on Amazon. And... Um, that book was a long time in the making. It was definitely my most difficult book to write, but it has full discussions of 30 logic games with opportunity to practice those games after you have read my explanations. Most of those games are from the, the gap, uh, which is prep tests 39 through 51. Those are difficult prep tests for many people to get their hands on. And the bulk of the games in the playbook are uh, from uh, that gap. So it's a good way to get your hands on those games. And uh, those games are still recent enough that they're pretty predictive of what you're likely to see on your test. And uh, yeah, I recommend that you buy it and review it and let me know what you think of it. 
Awesome. Yeah, that's exciting. Thanks for your patience, um, to the listeners. I know it's been annoying for me to continually tease it and tease it and tease it, but sometimes these things just uh, take time, and I, I wanted to make sure that I got it right, and I really think we did. So I'm pretty proud of it. Now i got to think about whether I want to write another one or not. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe on Reading Comp? Yeah, right. I, you know, I just don't have that much to say about Reading Comp. I don't know. I would, but I don't. I kind of think that the reading comp books are bullshit. I don't know. What do you think about that? I think that there is a lot to say when it comes to specific examples. So one thing I'm trying to work on is explaining how passages are structured beyond just the paragraphs themselves. Some paragraphs or some passages, the paragraphs are actually a good framework for thinking about the passage as a whole. But a lot of these, the paragraphs have multiple points within them and they're separate points that you definitely need to note. But sometimes points are repeated in several different sentences. And so just clustering them all together and thinking of that as one little segment within a paragraph uh, can be helpful in terms of simplifying the passage. So the thing that's kind of well, I guess I'm an LSAT geek, but it's kind of interesting is looking at the passages and seeing how they're all uh, sort of different and how you structure them is different. Obviously, there's some similarities, but getting good at recognizing the different segments within a paragraph and noting what the main point is of that little segment and seeing how that fits in the bigger picture is a core reading skill. And I think uh, going through examples with people can be really helpful, not just for the reading comp section, but I just think for like life and uh, law school that lies ahead. You know, like how do you look at this text? How do you break it down, deconstruct it? I think most people get lost in the trees. They're very good at understanding individual sentences, but not really good at seeing how that fits in the big picture. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean... Don't get me wrong, I can definitely help people get better at reading comprehension if I go through examples with them. I just don't have I don't have very much of a structure for thinking about reading comprehension because it comes so naturally to me, you know? Like mm-hmm. we we did an episode one time where we gave a few tips for reading yeah. comprehension and I thought that was really useful and I keep referring people back to that episode. Mm-hmm. But I can't imagine writing an entire book about reading comprehension i mean i (laughs) like i have about a page worth of stuff to say um beyond just you know exam i guess yeah i could just do example after example after example maybe you need to write a book ben i'll read it it. (laughs) yeah Yeah, that sounds good that's about that's about equal workload there (laughs) totally cool well should we uh get into this email from ed yeah we should this is a this is an interesting email well, I have some questions for Ed, uh, but uh, oh, okay. let's go ahead. Well, I mean, I, I like I said, I, I really would love to get Ed. Um, I think it could be interesting to get him on the show. So maybe we'll call him up and do a quick uh, little interview with him. Okay. Here's, 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 here's his email, and we can do the best we can without having Ed actually on the show right now. It says, hey, Nathan and Ben. So I live in a remote fishing village in southeast Alaska. The closest testing center is at the University of Alaska in Juneau, just over 200 miles from me. Unfortunately, the trip starts with a float plane ride out of my village and then involves catching a commercial airline into Juneau. 
They call the trip to Juneau the milk run, as the plane makes at least two stops during that short 200 miles, delivering mail and passengers. The trip ends up being an all-day affair to get from my home in Myers Chuck to Juneau. I would drive, but there are no roads connecting Juneau to anywhere. What advice do you have for minimizing the effects of this travel on my test day performance? <laughs> the, the email goes on, but maybe we should take that as a first step. Okay, so my initial gut reaction to this was like, wow, I have no experience at all relating to anything like this. Mm-hmm. My my first advice would be to try to get there the day before. Can you stay somewhere in Juneau and then you're not you know, just traveling there and taking the test you're traveling yeah. there staying in a hotel i guess uh, like a beaver, <laughs> beaver lodge or something like a... yeah i don't i don't really know alaska uh, <laughs> yeah um no i mean i would say the exact same thing get there early a day early two days early i don't know i mean make a little trip of it is juno a fun place to go i have no idea watch some dog sledding while you're there or something Maybe he should just do some dog sledding from Myers Chuck to Juno. I wonder if that's possible. Uh, I think I think the issue is that there's lots of like miniature lakes up there. Oh, but and they they can't connect things without yeah. all of them. But they're like there's not like one lake. I don't know. I just feel like I'm seeing this from some movie or something. But this 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 is this is interesting. I was also wondering. He said that. Uh, well, I guess we'll go on here, but. Uh, that would be my advice for the travel thing. Yeah, certainly get there early. I mean, I've had so I've had students before who signed up at the last minute and there were no close testing centers available. Like the the closest one was like 2 hours away in some unknown city. And in I've actually had a student who I forget exactly the details, but I think she signed up. She just decided, "Well, you know what? Um I have a cousin in Vancouver and there's a testing center open in Vancouver. So I'll just sign up in Vancouver, fly up a day early and stay with my cousin and take the test in Vancouver. Mm. So, and I mean, that's not that bad of a situation. I, I feel like if you're really prepared for the test, if you're good enough at the test, that, that kind of thing isn't going to bother you that much. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think just arrive, arrive early. Our constant advice is to go to the testing center before the day of the test, right? We, we always try to recommend people do that if possible. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, yeah, especially if he's going some crazy trip, um, get there the day before or, or earlier, go to the testing center, find the testing center in Juneau, make sure you understand, um, you know, where the dog sled parking is and <laughs> how to get there. Um, try not to get attacked by Wolverines. And, um, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, one thing that's going to be in his favor is I, su- I assume there's probably only going to be a handful of people taking the test there. So it should be a very smooth sailing uh, test center, I assume. One would hope. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking it's going to be pretty easy. So as long as you go early, I think you're going to be fine. Okay, continuing on with the email. While my location does not probably make me a non-traditional student, my age certainly will. I'm 50 years old, and I have had a full career in law enforcement, 24 years. Would love to spend my remaining working years prosecuting criminal cases here in Alaska. Of course, we do not have an actual law school in our state, so we'll most likely attend in the Los Angeles area or Seattle. 
With whatever LSAT score I get, I'm bringing with me a 4.0 from Johns Hopkins in Baltimore from 2006. Should I prepare a diversity statement because of my age? Is my experience something that a prospective law school might give a little more consideration? I, I mean, I guess it would depend on what the diversity statement specifically says, but I think that a lot of what he brings to the table could be addressed in his personal statement. Um, his second question, is my experience something that prospective law school might give a little more consideration? I don't know if they would give it more consideration, but it would definitely be something that they would take into account and make you different from other applicants. And given the fact that you have a full career in law enforcement, this is not a totally you know, unrelated jump into law, it sort of makes sense. You're certainly going to b- bring a perspective to the law school class discussions that other people will just have no um, authority in whatsoever. And it's definitely one side of the legal discussion that needs to be heard. So I think um, there's definitely something here that he can bring to the law schools and show a sincerity of purpose. Like he's going into law knowing what he's going getting into because of his experience in law enforcement, uh, or at least somewhat. So I think they're very confident that he'll get out of law school and get a job. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a totally reasonable path of, hey, I was a cop or whatever else he was in law enforcement, had a full career, retired, but I still have a lot of good years ahead of me and I know exactly what I want to do. I want to be a prosecutor here in this same area where I already live. I think law schools are going to love that story. Mm-hmm. I, as far as whether to write a diversity statement, I do. I think you make a good point, Ben, that you can probably put most of this stuff into a personal statement. I definitely wouldn't repeat in the diversity statement something that I already said in my personal statement. Mm-hmm. So it kind of depends on what he's going to write his personal statement about, I guess. Yeah. Right. And because if he if he's going to write his personal, who knows? We don't know what his whole. You know, maybe he's a marathoner or something and wants to write his personal statement about that. Mm-hmm. If he does, and he has an opportunity to write a diversity statement, if it's one of these open-ended diversity statement prompts, you know, just like how do you bring diversity to the law school classroom or something like that, yeah. then if you hadn't already said, hey, I'm 50 years old from this remote fishing village, you know, I, I do think that's different and unique, mm-hmm. and it's a case to be made. Um, I wouldn't be super heavy-handed about it. I definitely wouldn't write like a second personal statement, but a one paragraph, you know, short statement of, Hey, here's how I'm different. I think as long as it's not repeating something that was in your personal statement. Yeah. I, I don't know. That's what my gut says. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think that's, that's absolutely right. Cause you don't want to be repetitive and it feels to me like it's not so much his age, but his experience. That's really what he's bringing to the table. And that's unique. I mean, age certainly is a factor, but people can be older and not really contribute much. So I think it's everything that uh, this full career that he's bringing to the table okay. that's contributing. The other thing here is he says that uh, with whatever score I get, I'm bringing with me a 4.0 from John Hopkins in yeah. 2006. So that must not be undergrad, right? Oh, yeah, that's a good point. I, I read that as undergraduate GPA. I hope it's not a master's. 
if it's his undergrad, I mean, because he could have been like working, maybe he had a community college degree or maybe he just had a high school education, but he was working with law enforcement somehow. Mm -hmm. I mean, that happens, right? And then he graduate, maybe he got his undergraduate degree later in life. Yeah. If he did and he's got, then he does legit have a 4.0 from Johns Hopkins. That's awesome. Yeah. But if this is some master's in uh, criminal justice or something like that, that he did later in life, it's good that he got a 4.0, but that's not your grade point average that the LSAC is going to use or that the law schools are going to use. Yeah. I mean, they'll definitely take it into consideration. It would have probably, it's given how long he's been out of undergrad, if he's been out of under, if this is not undergrad, then it would be definitely something they'd look to because they want to know what you're going to do now or how you're likely to do now in law school. But yeah. yeah. Well, it's just, it's not going into their index calculations, right? Yep. I mean, they're going to yep. use, I'm sorry, but they're going to use your LSAC GPA when they do the index calculations. So, and by the way, the only way to figure out what your LSAC GPA is, or the easiest way to figure out what your LSAC GPA is, is just sign up for the credential assembly service, get all of your transcripts submitted, and then the LSAC will tell you exactly what your LSAC GPA really is. Yeah. And you got to do that before you can start playing around with the law school calculator tool and figure out what good target law schools are for you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Last question is, I see that the Credential Assembly Service at LSAC will no longer be accepting evaluations as part of the package they prepare beginning in August. Should prospective students still gather evaluations or will law schools just not ask for them now? The answer to that is no. I, w- I wouldn't gather evaluations, but I would ev- I would gather uh letters of recommendation they're sure. still they're still doing those it almost it almost sounds like he's equating the two I oh feel like. i see i see yeah so there were two things there were personal statements and then there were these evaluations the evaluations haven't been around for very long huh five years or something like that yeah and mm-hmm. that was a total failed experiment it turns out that no law schools ever wanted those evaluations or very few law schools ever wanted those evaluations so um, for a couple of years now, Anne Levine has been saying, no, don't get evaluations. Law schools don't care about those. That's so interesting because <laughs> they're actually more effective. They force you to be objective by saying, where would you rate this person? Now, someone could obviously lie or, or whatever, but it's easier to say, hey, so-and-so is great and not really think they're that great compared to other people than it is to say, they're in the 95th percentile if you really don't think they're in the 95th percentile. And that's what the evaluations forced people to do is to put them, like rank them, compare them to other people in their peer group. Yeah. But anyways, I mean, it's a moot point, I guess, but <laughs> I think people, it's actually a better evaluation. <laughs> sure. I mean, people don't like to change, right? The law schools have their procedures and all of the entrenched people in the admissions offices or whoever are on these committees that are making these decisions the LSAC announced this new thing and it was work for everybody to adopt these new evaluations and it just never happened. <laughs> it just didn't, it just didn't take off. So we're, we're back to where we were five years ago, which is you do have to get letters of recommendation, but you do not have to get evaluations for, for any schools. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's not even going to be a thing anymore. The the LSAC is killing killing that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that is the email from Ed. He signs off with mostly off the grid in Myers Chuck, Alaska. So if you're <laughs> ever in Myers Chuck, Alaska, look for um, a 50 year old former cop named Ed and uh, tell him that the thinking LSAT community says hi. <laughs> cool. All right. Ready to do some logical reasoning questions? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Awesome. We are very slowly working our way through the June 2007 LSAT. You can get this test uh, for free by Googling June 2007 LSAT. It'll pop right up. If you want to pause the podcast while you attempt these questions on your own, that might make sense. Or if you want to just listen straight through and go back to the explanations later on, when you do have the test in front of you, you can just look at the show notes on thinkinglsat.com and there'll be a timestamp that'll tell you exactly where these uh, explanations occurred in the podcast. So you can just go back and listen if you want to do it that way. Cool. You want to start here? We're on number 20. Yeah, sure. One. So this is uh, Gamba. And Gamba says, uh, Munoz claims that the Southwest Hopeville Neighbors Association overwhelmingly opposes the new water system, citing this as evidence of citywide opposition. The association did pass a resolution opposing the new water system, but only 25 of 350 members voted, with 10 in favor of the system. Furthermore, the 15 opposing votes represent far less than 1% of Hopeville's population. One should not assume that so few votes represent the view of the majority of Hopeville's residents. What are your thoughts? It seems pretty reasonable to me. You know, I I would have to, my job is kind of to disagree with what these speakers are saying, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's just hard for me to disagree with this when, you know, there are exactly 25 people in the entire community who voted. Mm -hmm. Um, They're all members of the Southwest Hopeville Neighbors Association. We have no idea whether that's a, you know, prominent organization. We have no idea what percentage of the population this neighbors association represents or anything like that. But the, the worst part is that only 25 of the three, 350 members even voted. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at the vote, 10 people were in favor of the system and only 15 people opposed. Yeah. And so it's only a difference of five people really. Mm-hmm. And so then that does make me want to reach this conclusion that one should not assume that so few votes represent the view of the majority of Hopeville's residents. I One thing I love about that is that the conclusion of this argument is basically all it says is not so fast. Mm-hmm. And not so fast is almost always a valid conclusion, right? Or it's it's just very difficult to argue with that. Yeah, most things could be or <laughs> could be true. And this is basically saying this could it could be the case that this is not correct. <laughs> right. It's just saying, hey, you know, and it's not so it's not making the flaw of going the other way. Like they frequently it would have been this exact same argument, but the conclusion would be therefore 
the city does not oppose the new water system. Yeah. Right. And that would be the flaw of assuming that because a bad argument had been made, therefore the opposite of that argument's conclusion must be true. Yeah. Which is a very common flaw, like top five, Mm -hmm. probably flaw. This argument doesn't go that far. This argument just says, Hey, they made an argument based on a tiny sample. Let's not jump to conclusions based on that. Yeah. And that's uh, an argument that an LSAT teacher can love, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you 100%. To clarify, I think what I said might have been a little bit confusing about could be true, but I'm I'm trying to say the same thing that you're saying, and that is that you can say things must be true or you can say that they must be false, but the reality is, is both of those claims are very, very strong and very, very hard to prove. And most things are really sort of in the middle, somewhere in the could be true <laughs> realm. Yeah. And this, by not making that mistake of saying, yeah, like as you were saying, this can't be the case or this is the case, the argument's actually doing a pretty good job by just saying, hey, we shouldn't assume that this means that they actually do oppose the new water system or whatever. Yeah, it's it's not taking a position one way or the other it's not it it actually takes no position as to the truth or falsity Mm -hmm. you know it has there's no position taken here about whether the city opposes or supports this new water system Mm -hmm. the conclusion is solely just hey let's chill out here not so fast Mm -hmm. and that i mean that's always going to be i can't i just i don't see a flaw in that thinking yeah okay so then it says of the following which one most accurately describes Gamba's strategy of argumentation? So this is a reasoning question, which means we need to go back. Well, I mean, we may already know, but just go back and figure out how Gamba reached his conclusion. What was the evidence that he used to support that conclusion? And in this case, what was that evidence? Yeah, I I would maybe um, just sort of paraphrase here of what I mm. think Gamba roughly did. Mm-hmm. I think Gamba Gamba concluded not so fast, and the reason why Gamba concluded not so fast was, hey, you got a really small sample here. Mm-hmm. So I would love an answer that said, looked at a study that had a small sample and then refused to reach a strong conclusion. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> or just, so, yeah. <laughs> or pointed out that the study was, or the sample was small. Pointed out that the, the small sample in the study doesn't really justify reaching any big conclusions. Yep. Something like that would be great. Yeah. Okay. Answer choice A says questioning a conclusion based on the results of a vote on the grounds that people with certain views are more likely to vote. So we never talked about people with certain views. So yeah, to make A the answer, Gamba would have had to have said something like, "But people who are members of neighborhood neighborhood associations are more likely to vote. Therefore, the results of the vote are skewed." Yeah, and he he just did not go there at all. So it can't be A. Yeah. B questioning a claim supported by statistical data by arguing that statistical data can be manipulated. Nope. 
<laughs> Certainly can be, but never made that argument, never made that claim. Yep, I would not probably read through that entire answer choice. It's just, it, that's so far off the rails when it hits the word manipulated. It's, that's not the answer. Yep. C, attempting to refute an argument by showing that contrary to what has been claimed, the truth of the premises does not guarantee the truth of the conclusion. So I don't, I don't like this part that says contrary to what has been claimed because I don't remember anyone claiming that the truth of the premises does guarantee the truth of the conclusion. Someone might assume that, but I don't see anyone claiming that. Yeah, it's the closest so far. If I wanted to like shoehorn it in, mm -hmm. I, I could say, well, Munoz did cite this study as evidence of citywide op opposition. Mm -hmm. So, so according to Gamba, Munoz is saying, look at what, you know, Munoz has, Munoz presented these premises mm -hmm. and then said that these premises are evidence of opposition. But mm -hmm. yeah, the guarantee thing is what makes me hate C. It, it's just, I don't think Munoz really said that. Didn't make that claim. Or Gamba right. didn't say Munoz made that claim. Yeah. Whenever you're in doubt and you're not totally sure, it's probably wrong, but you could keep it open if you wanted. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I do that just to say, well, um, I don't like this and I have a chip on my shoulder, but maybe the others are really bad and then I can go back and figure yeah. this one out. Or we come to something better and you can just say, well, I don't know what C was saying, but it's wrong because <laughs> this is better. Right. So I like C better than A and B, but I still <laughs> don't like C very much. One mm -hmm. thing I wouldn't do for sure is I wouldn't spend very much time trying to make a case for C. Uh, this is mm, a, no. a yeah. big problem. I think many students do this. In fact, it's one of the biggest problems I think that people have with the logical reasoning is that they they think they're looking for the right answer, and so they spend so much time trying to 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 like make C work that mm -hmm. they they end up wasting a lot of time in the answer choices because what they should be doing is quickly dismissing a and B and C and then getting to at least go through all the answers once before you like do a whole bunch of heavy lifting to force an answer to be the answer. Yeah. Right. I mean, your job is not to make the answers work. Your job is to see how the answers on their own merits actually work. Mm -hmm. So at this point, I, I might, well, I think I'd have A, B, and C crossed out. But if you were unsure, you could have A and B crossed out for sure. So you never go yep. back to them. And then C, you're just kind of, it's hanging on by a thread. <laughs> yeah. And it may be cut off pretty soon here. Yep. So D, criticizing a view on the grounds that the view is based on evidence that is in principle impossible to disconfirm. I really don't like this in principle thing. I, I've, I've actually seen this in other uh, answer choices, in wrong answer choices in reading comp. That doesn't mean that the phrase in principle is per se wrong, but it's a very strange sort of argument. It means that you, you can't even make this claim or prove this claim in principle. So not only in this situation, but just in all situations that are like it. And it just strikes me as very strange. Well, I think to make D the answer, Gamba would have had to have said something like, hey, your hypothesis is not testable, mm -hmm. right? We, 
it's you can't have a scientific argument you can't have scientific reasoning without the possibility of being able to disprove the thing that you're claiming mm-hmm. and so but that's a totally different argument i mean that's just not what happened in this argument at all yeah e attempting to cast out on a conclusion by claiming that the statistical sample on which the conclusion is based is too small to be dependable i mean that's just that's exactly what it's doing. No, notice it's not disproving the conclusion. It's just casting doubt on yeah. it. And it's a statistical sample, and I can't say that word for some reason. And <laughs> uh, it's too small to be dependable. So this is exactly what happened. We don't even have to worry about C. No, we don't. We wouldn't. I would not even look back at C. I would have been like, well, something was funky about C, but E is exactly what I predicted. So E is the answer. One point maybe to make here is that if it said... Um, disproving a conclusion instead of attempting to cast doubt on a conclusion Mm. if it said disproving a conclusion uh, or showing that a conclusion is false Mm -hmm. that would be not the answer because that is not what gamba actually did yeah gamba only said hey not so fast i'm not sure about this and e matches that so he's perfect yeah great should we go on to the next one yeah yeah I guess maybe I'll read this one to you. Sure. So number 21 driver says my friends say I will one day have an accident because I drive my sports car recklessly, but I have done some research and apparently minivans and larger sedans have very low accident rates compared to sports cars. So trading my sports car in for a minivan would lower my risk of having an accident. Okay. So this is definitely a correlation to causation flaw because the evidence that he's citing is that minivans and large sedans have very low accident rates. Um, We don't know why they have very low accident rates. It's just saying that there's a correlation between minivans and uh, low accident rates. And then the conclusion is trading in my sports car for a minivan. In other words, getting a minivan would lower my risk. Lower is a causal verb. So it's saying that this action would actually make my risk of having an accident go down. That's a, so it's a causal conclusion. And just because there's a correlation between these things doesn't mean that there is a causal relationship. And so... Let me, let me interrupt you, okay? Yeah, go ahead. You just gave a perfect explanation if you're an LSAT teacher, right? I mean, if you're an LSAT expert, which you are, okay. <laughs> you okay. just gave a very fundamentally sound explanation. Mm-hmm. What would you say if you were this guy's buddy? If I were this guy's buddy, I'd say, hey, <laughs> slow down for a half second. It might be you that's causing the problems and not the car. Right. And that's the gist of this the problem with this argument. I mean, everything Ben said before is absolutely correct, and I would say that in class as well. But I think this is a question that, you know, you should have a gut reaction to this argument. If your buddy, you know, is like, you're his friend, so you're the one who's saying, hey, dude, you're going to crash that thing. Mm -hmm. And then this guy comes back with, oh, yeah, so if I get a minivan, then I won't. And I think if you're his buddy, you you would say, well, uh, maybe that might help. 
certainly, you know, minivans are, are probably harder to crash than a sports car, I would guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you drive like an asshole. And if you start driving a minivan like an asshole, I don't care what the statistics say about minivan accident rates are. Yeah. You know, the reason one one reason why sports cars crash a lot is that people drive sports cars recklessly. Mm-hmm. And so if you and it's that that's there, there's it's partially the car, but it's partially you. Right. Yeah. OK, so go go, go on. Or did, did you want to go? Um... Oh, well, no, I think uh, I think you're absolutely right. And I think this is one where intuitively I think it's easier to see the, the sort of problem. But it can also be a good example to um, see how correlation and causation are related. Yeah. See that in action so that when you see an argument that's not so intuitive or easy to get your mind wrapped around, you can see that, oh, this is a correlation statement and this is a causal statement and there must be some sort of flaw by jumping from one to the next. Yeah, it's probably the second most common flaw that you're going to encounter on the LSAT. I mean, if there are two flaws that you should be really familiar with, it's confusing a sufficient condition with a necessary condition, and it's uh, concluding causation on the basis of a correlation in the evidence. Yeah. And so this is that one. This is definitely a correlation causation argument. And I would say that, you know, I, my objection is beyond the common sense objection of, hey, dude, you're the problem, not the car. Mm-hmm. I would say, you know, technically speaking, this is a correlation causation argument and we could start attacking it. We could think about reversal of cause and effect, or we could think about alternate causes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'll, yeah. Uh, to get kind of ab- abstract here, basically they said two things were happening together. Therefore one of them caused the other. And what we were saying is, yeah, but maybe it's something else that's causing the accidents. And so that's the alternative cause that you were talking about. Yep. So this is a good, a good, good one. I think that almost everyone can understand intuitively, and then try to make it abstract so you can then apply that to another more ridiculous argument. Yeah. Cool. The question stem says the reasoning in the driver's argument is most vulnerable to criticism on the grounds that the argument what? And this is a you know, is this a flaw question or is it a weakened question? And what's the difference between those two things? Yeah, so this is definitely a flaw question because it says, well, it has the phrase most vulnerable to criticism. That phrase only appears in flaw questions. And it's also a flaw question because it's asking us to describe the problem. It says the reasoning in the argument is most vulnerable to criticism on the grounds that this argument, and then it's like letting us finish that sentence. This argument does what? as opposed to a weakened question, which would never set it up this way. A weakened question would say, which one of the following, if true, most weakens the argument? And in that case, they're not asking you to describe the problem with the argument or the flaw. They're asking you to take a new piece of evidence and then actually attack the argument with that evidence. It's a common... um misconception i think people don't really recognize the difference between flaw questions and weakened questions but ben did uh explain that very clearly i think that's really useful distinction flaw questions are asking you to describe a flaw that's actually in the argument 
Whereas weakened questions, they almost always include the word if in the question stem. It's if true. Which one, if true, would cause the most problems for the argument? So flaw questions are very predictable, right? We should be able to spot the flaw that already exists in this argument. All we're going to do is describe this flaw. Mm-hmm. Weakened questions are have a much wider range of correct answers because it's which one of these five things, if it were in fact true, would cast the most doubt on the conclusion. Mm-hmm. And, th- and th- that could be anything. We don't know yet, right? We'd have to look at the answer choices to see uh, what the answer is. Yeah, and you know, another confusing thing I think for people when it comes to weakened questions is that on the test there's this this sense that, hey, I've got to stick to answer choices that are relevant to the argument. And that is definitely true. You can't uh, weaken a conclusion by talking about something totally different. But in weakened questions and in strengthened questions, because they're asking you which one of the following, if true, does the most to weaken the argument, which means to effectively weaken the main conclusion, sometimes the answer choices can bring in new ideas that were never discussed in the passage. And so sometimes people get rid of those answers because they say, hey, this was never talked about, so this is not true. But you have to ask yourself, well, if this is true, even though it was never discussed, would it make me doubt the conclusion in some way, shape, or form? If it does have some sort of impact on the conclusion, even though it's new, um, then that's a potentially good answer. And so if it's irrelevant, then it's wrong. But if it's new but relevant, then it's still uh, totally valid and in play. Don't be so quick to say something is irrelevant. You know, if this were a weakened question, if the question had said, which one of the following, if true, would cast the most doubt on the argument? Mm -hmm. Uh, If there was an answer that said, space aliens have infested your brain and are causing you to drive recklessly. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that's not, they laid eggs inside your brain and the, 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 there's little alien spiders that are crawling around in your brain and that's causing you to drive recklessly. Mm-hmm. People would be like, what? Space aliens? That can't be the answer. Mm-hmm. But if, the, if it was a weakened question and it had said which one of the following, if true, <laughs> mm-hmm. then now, yeah. I'm sorry, but this person has alien spiders inside of their brain. And if yeah. it's true that there are alien spiders inside of your brain causing you to drive recklessly, mm-hmm. then that would cast a lot of doubt on whether, you know, switching to a minivan is actually going to lower your risk of having an accident. Yeah. Yeah. Because this is a flaw question, then you would be able to quickly dismiss, you know, space aliens. Yes. But not so easy on weekend questions. Uh, I guess there is one exception here we do need to keep in mind, and that is something like, Sometimes uh, in a flaw question, it will say the argument is most vulnerable to criticism on the grounds that it overlooks yeah. the possibility. Fails to consider the possibility that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And so then it's like, oh, what did I fail to consider? That driver, which could be his name, I guess, that driver yeah. <laughs> needs glasses but doesn't wear them or something like that. You say, oh, well, maybe that's the problem. Yeah, it wasn't stated in the argument, but when the answer choice leads off with fails to consider the possibility that, well, then, okay, yeah, you did fail to consider that possibility. Mm -hmm. Now let me consider that possibility. Mm -hmm. Oh, and if it would cause a problem for the argument, then that could be the answer for a flaw question. Yeah. Okay. So it's a flaw question. We've we've said that the flaw is 
correlation causation. Mm -hmm. Okay. We get to A. A says infers a cause from a mere correlation. Boom. Yeah. Boom. By the way, I should clarify something. I think a lot of people get confused by the word infers. I don't know if we've talked about that before, but infers just means concludes. So sometimes I think people transform this answer choice into something way more than it is. It's just saying in, to infer something is to conclude something. So it's saying it concluded a cause from a mere correlation. Sure, yeah, which is exactly what it did. It concluded mm -hmm. causation from mere correlation. That's exactly the answer. That's the answer. Let's go yeah. through uh, the wrong answers, though, and see if we can conclusively dismiss them. So B says it relies on a sample that is too narrow. I mean, we don't really know what uh, his research was based on, so we just have to trust that it was decent. Yeah, we can't accuse him of using a small sample. We know that he did some research. In order for B to be the answer on a flaw question, it would have had to have been, you know, I went out on a street corner and I asked two people what they think. Yeah. And then you know, that, then you have some reason to believe the sample might be too narrow. Right. So and this is a good illustration, I think, of the difference between flaw questions and weakened questions, by the mm -hmm. way. Because yeah. if this were a weakened question, and it was which one of the following, if true, would cast doubt on the argument above, and then there was an answer that says relied on a sample that's too narrow, mm -hmm. I think that would be a great answer for a weakened question. Yeah, because you got to keep in mind it's saying if it were true. So you say, we don't have any reason to know that this is true or believe that this is true, but they're telling me that that it, it is true for the sake of this argument. So if it is true that he relied on a sample that's too narrow, well, then we can't get correlation. And if you don't have correlation, then you definitely can't get to causation. Right. But on flaw questions, since we're supposed to be describing a flaw that actually existed in the argument, we can't pick mm -hmm. this because we don't know what kind of a sample driver used. Yeah. C says misinterprets evidence that a result is likely as evidence that the result is certain. Mm, no, that would be drawing a conclusion that this will happen on the basis of the fact that it is likely to happen. Um, the evidence never said that it was likely that the minivan would lower his risk of having an accident. It just said there was a correlation between the two yeah. and never got specific to him. Yeah, well, Driver also never made a conclusion that switching to a minivan will make me avoid accidents, right? He said it'll lower my risk of having an accident, which is not quite getting to like certainty. Yeah. To make C the answer, it would be something like... Um, you know, Clayton Kershaw wins 90% of his starts. Therefore, uh, since Clayton Kershaw is starting tonight for the Dodgers, therefore the Dodgers are certain to win. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. would be taking evidence about a likely result. Sure. Kershaw is awesome. If he's starting, you're probably going to win. That doesn't mean that it's certain that you're going to win the game. And that would be yeah. C. I could see, just to clarify, I could see this conclusion as being considered a result is certain, it would lower my risk. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, I get that. I think you're right. Mm -hmm. But either. But yeah. Either way, <laughs> this okay. did not happen. D. Did it mistake a condition sufficient for bringing about a result for a condition necessary for doing so? Okay. So we'd have to ask ourselves: What is the condition sufficient, or what is the sufficient condition for bringing about a result? It, D is just. It's confusing a sufficient condition with a necessary condition. Yep. Right? It's the LSAT's most common flaw. Mm -hmm. 
I am really rarely surprised by that answer choice. I mean, if that were the flaw of the argument, I would already know that that was the flaw of the argument. Yeah. So how would you find what the sufficient condition is for bringing about a result? First of all, we'd have to ask ourselves what the result is, right? So what's the result? Well, I, cause I wouldn't even, I wouldn't think twice about this answer. I mean, this would be, this is definitely not the answer. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying, but I guess stepping back for people who are tempted by this answer, they, I think it'd be helpful to know what these things are, sure. right? So, and well, why they don't exist in this argument. To make, how about this? To make this the right answer, mm-hmm. driver would have had to have said something like, uh, if you drive a minivan, you never get in accidents because I never get in accidents. Therefore I drive a minivan. Yeah. That's something that, I mean, I drill that into my students on the very first night of class and I make sure they understand what it sounds like when someone confuses a sufficient condition for a necessary condition or a necessary condition for a sufficient condition. Mm-hmm. It's the LSAT's most common flaw. And I feel like you should just, you have to know that flaw forward and backward because it's a wrong answer on a million flaw questions. Mm-hmm. Right? So you get past that by just knowing exactly what that flaw looks like. Yeah. Uh, the one thing, so a perfect example, uh, and you started with if then, right? right. So the, the if clause in the if then statement is the sufficient condition for the then clause in that same if then statement. So here, when I see condition sufficient for bringing about a result, I would say to myself, was there an if-then statement that led to him lowering his risk of getting into an accident? And the the only thing here, he says, he says, trading my sports car in for a minivan would lower my risk of having an accident. So that is a sufficient condition, at least according to him, for bringing about the result of lowering his risk of having an accident. Does he mistake that for a necessary condition for doing so? No, there is never any sort of if-then statement in the premises. So yeah. we don't, we don't have, we don't have an if-then statement here, at least in the premises. So we can't get to even this mix-up because we don't have a necessary condition anywhere. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I know it's a. I'm getting kind of technical here, but I think sometimes people get confused by that language. I'm trying to show that, oh, it's really just referring to an if clause for something and then for a then clause for something. Yeah, the evidence was not if then. And if you don't have if then evidence, then you can't con- you can't confuse a sufficient condition for a necessary condition in your conclusion. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, sometimes there are hidden if then statements. So like all cats are purple is really just if you're a cat, then you're purple. So it's not so simple as, oh, do I have an if then statement? But if then or hidden if then statements, right? Anyways. Yeah, well, and they can say everyone that is taking physics is taking chemistry. That's also yes. an if then statement. That's an if then statement, right. yeah. Perfect. Okay. Uh, e, did the argument rely on a source that is probably not well informed? The same problem as B. Exactly, yeah. If this were a weakened question, that might be, you know, a decent uh, weakener. But we just don't know. I, I have had students with this question be like, well, wait a minute, but this is just some guy and he's 
you know, he's doing the research. Well, he's not an expert. Okay, but we don't know whether he's an expert or not, actually. Mm -hmm. We don't know what sources he relied on when he did his research. For all we know, he might be an expert and he might be a professional researcher. And he mm -hmm. might have relied only on the most well-informed sources in the world. We can't accuse Driver of doing this. Yeah. So it can't be the answer for a flaw question. Cool. Uh, not to mention, you know, it's just this is the LSAT's second most common flaw, and A is describing it perfectly, so the mm -hmm. answer is A. Yeah. Great. Anything else that we should talk about before we go get Jeff Todd? No, I'm good. Okay, so uh, enjoy this interview that I did with Jeff Todd. I, th I think it's pretty long. It's maybe 45 minutes long. And again, he's a Harvard Law School graduate, practiced law for five years, and now he writes about baseball transactions. So uh, hope you enjoy. Um, before we go, uh, anybody who wants to ask questions, boy, we love getting questions to the show. So you can always email help at thinkinglsat.com. You can email me directly, Nathan at foxlsat.com, Ben at strategyprep.com. Uh, you can also tweet me at in Fox, or you can tweet the show at thinking else at, uh, anything else you want to add, Ben? Yeah. If you have any suggestions for interviews, I guess send them our way, right? Yeah. We'd love to get more guests on the show. Um, I think we'd love to have current law students on the show. Okay. Uh, we would love to have even just people who are studying for the LSAT on the show. We would love to have lawyers on the show, uh, former lawyers on the show, judges. I mean, if you know anybody who you think would be a good guest and you think would be willing to come on and, and talk to us, sure, yeah, send us a note and we'll we'll try to get them on. Jeff Todd came on because of uh, a suggestion from an anonymous listener on our website, thinkinglsat.com. So ask and ye shall receive. <laughs> By the way, that does remind me, I, I've been getting a lot of questions lately from people who have gotten into law school and some very good law schools and they're saying, hey, I'm in now, I'm excited, what should I do to prepare? So they prepared for the LSAT and they, they did well and now they're trying to think about how they can best do their first semester. I always suggest to them to get the book uh, Getting to Maybe, it's about how to take law school exams. But I'm sure there's some other good books out there if anyone has any recommendations. The other thing would be like what you're saying is interviewing people who are in law school right now. And if anyone is doing particularly well in law school, I'd really like to hear from them. What did you do to be doing so well? What did you do your first semester? Did you prepare beforehand or did you just jump right into the whole process that first day? Um, I think those would be interesting questions for a lot of people, especially once they're done with the whole LSAT thing. Yeah, that'd be great. Let us know and we will uh, mix it up a little bit with guests. So, cool. Uh, anyway, here we go. Here's the interview with Jeff Todd. I mean, then why was it law school? Why, why, why did that... How did you make that choice that you're just going to go straight in? Well... You know, given that background, obviously you're you're taking this sort of liberal arts path and there's not like a, a clear job path from it. You know, it's not like, oh, I'm an engineer, so let me go, you know, to job fairs for, you know, entry level engineering jobs or something. And so my thought was, you know, maybe I could apply to some kinds of government jobs, um, you know, 
foreign service, you know, anything like that. I had a whole, whole bunch of thoughts in my head. In the meantime, I, I thought about an academic path. Uh, I took the GRE or what, whatever the exam is for, for grad school. I was kind of thinking about that. I took the LSAT, you know, to open that opportunity as well. And, and partially because, you know, a lot of lawyers go on and do many different things. And and I knew that that was a, a plausible kind of professional outlet as well. And so I kind of just was at a point where I was uh, throwing some things against the wall. And uh, in all honesty, it, it like I said, it was sort of a decision that ended up making itself for me because I got into Harvard and I felt like that was the kind of opportunity that, you know, I didn't come from a family where it was expected I would go to Harvard or something. So it was sort of an opportunity I felt like to meet people and do things and have access to things that I wouldn't otherwise have. And, and it would serve me regardless uh, of where I went. And it was a good general background, you know, regardless of what, what, what I might choose to do. So that was kind of how I started things off. You know, I was 22. So okay. <laughs> it's a little aimless, but yeah. So the LSAT came easily to you. If I could be like a professional standardized test taker, that would probably suit me well. I, I've always took well to that. Um, I remember being in, you know, fifth grade taking these little challenge tests and I, I just loved it. I I always enjoyed that sort of thing. I took it as a challenge and I think that was the biggest thing for me. It wasn't intimidating to take that kind of a test. It was an opportunity to go in and, and try to do well. You know, for me, the sort of ability to process information quickly, use logical reasoning, you know, it, it was fun. And um, I I didn't actually even prepare all that much, but I think having that kind of, you know, having that mentality and, and having, you know, developed the ability, I guess, you know, to sort of succeed in that sort of setting, you know, set me up to do well on it. It was more happenstance, I guess, yeah, I mean, it sounds like I'm talking to myself. That That's exactly my story. You know, just ever since I was a little kid, I loved taking these stupid little tests and I was always good at it. I mean, I'm here to tell you that you can become a professional standardized test taker if you would like, um, because that's what I do. <laughs> that, that is what I do, uh, really. I mean, because if you're really good at it, then I'm sure you'd also be able to teach it. But uh, you've uh, you've already got your satisfying career writing about baseball, which you love. So that's fantastic. Well, we, we will talk about that afterwards if you're offering a job, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not hiring. I would suggest you strike out on your own. I think it's a better gig that way anyway. So you said you – did you get any books or anything like that when you were preparing for the LSAT? You know, I, I mostly just started off taking a few practice tests and kind of seeing where I stood. And for me, the, you know, reading stuff and all – it was all it all came very naturally to yeah. me. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't need to do anything with that. The one that I did, uh, prep, prep on somewhat more intensively was the logic games yeah. because, you know, there's more strategy there and obviously everyone's different with what they're good and bad at. But like I said, for me, the other sections I could pretty much just breeze through and the logic games, I just needed to learn how to approach it. And so I, I used the logic games Bible, if I remember correctly, and I don't know that I like worked through the whole thing diligently, but but I did use that and it, it definitely, you know, going through the process of preparing for that section for me, I think is is why why I did well on the test, because like I said, the other ones were, you know, pretty much in the in the bag for me, I felt like. But that was kind of, you know, hit or miss like any given day, how I would do on it if I did a time thing, which I, I did, I guess, a little bit of. 
you know, that, that particular day, I, I guess I just was, was in the zone on it a little bit. And it's one of those things, you know, when you're, when you're clicking on it and, uh, able to set up those games properly, you can, you can knock it out. Yeah, absolutely. Do you mind, uh, sharing your score? I think I had a 176. 176. That is a Harvard Law School type of score. Um, My grades needed it, yeah. Okay. What was your undergraduate GPA? Well, I actually kind of timed it out well. If I remember, I, because I, you know, when the way I forget exactly how they tabulate it all, but I think that your last semester didn't count if you applied as a, as a senior. You were already admitted to Harvard by the time those, those final grades came out. Exactly. And so I was, you know, my last semester, I took some tough, you know, grad level classes. I was, I took grad level classes the whole way, but, but that, that I was taking like, you know, 500 level classes, like seminars, the type of type of course that you were not going to just waltz in and get an A plus. Um, but the semester before that I had kind of run my GPA up to the highest point that it was. And I think that when they calculated it, it was like a three, seven. Yeah, that's very strong. Why were you taking those grad level courses or you just were interested in them and wanted to wanted to take those classes? Yeah, I mean, it was the stuff I was interested in. It was, uh, you know, I took an entire semester course on on Chairman Mao. Um, wow. You know, I took some classes on like Vietnamese political history, things like that, which, you know, the level of detail you just couldn't get in the kind of undergraduate courses. And, you know, they're small classes with just top notch professors and high-level students, and, and, you know, it would be me and one or two other undergrads maybe, and, you know, eight or ten grad students sitting around a room, you know, reading books, you know, reading a book or two every single week, that sort of thing that, you know, wasn't the same as sitting in a large lecture hall or something. So, that I mean, I loved it. It was it was a great experience and well worth it, regardless of what it did to my GPA. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. So, you get your admission letter from Harvard when? Oh boy. Yeah. I don't remember. I applied, I applied fairly early. I, I know that I'd gotten some other letters, you know, from other places and, you know, even like had a few scholarship offers and things. And Harvard was one of the last that I heard from, but I don't remember. Honestly, I want to say, Hmm. I think it was after my birthday. My birthday was in, I'm born on December 14th. So I think it was after that. Cause I know we had a, my, my, current wife and I, uh, at the time we had a party and I remember it, it wasn't, none of that was going on at the time that I had gotten in. But I, I think I, I remember going out to rugby practice and, and everybody knew about it. So it was probably, it was probably sometime in the spring, like maybe January, February. I see. Okay, cool. Do you remember what you did that summer before you started law school? Got married. Oh, okay. Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was, um, you know, I wish I would have, like I said, I wish I would have, it's, it's one of these things that, you know, I'm 33 now. And I think you come to appreciate it as you go on in time. I've got two kids. They're awesome. I love it. I love everything about my life. But I didn't realize how much time I had then. You know, I, I didn't realize how much free time I had and how much how I wouldn't, <laughs> you know, whether it was during law school or working and then especially having kids. And so, uh, you know, I mostly just kind of went home and got ready for the wedding and did that. And then we moved up to Boston and you know, by the time it was all said and done, I don't know that we did anything particularly interesting. Um, you know, I'd done some traveling uh, around a little bit, but, uh, you know, that was something that I pursued more during law school and then after I started working. But at the time, I was still a little bit of a, a little bit of a homebody, I guess, and, and pretty much just kind of got ready to start this whole new thing. 
So you're a newlywed in 05 and you're starting at Harvard Law School. How'd you do your 1L year? I did well. I, um, you know, I took pretty easily to it because I was married and we were just starting our lives together in that regard. You know, I wasn't super active socially. I didn't, you know, I wasn't living in the dorm rooms and whatever. So I didn't get to know a ton of people at that point. Uh, I was playing rugby. I played an undergrad. And so I, I kept playing the Harvard Business School as a team. So th- that was kind of my social side of things. But I kind of just went into class, kept my head down. Uh, I mean, I remember doing all the crazy exams and everything. We would get to you, most of our exams, I think you could bring home with you and work on. So I'd like go over to the school, pick it up, run home, take the whole thing, then like desperately print out the exam and, and you know, go tearing back over to turn it in on time. But I did well, you know, I did well enough that I was kind of in position to, I ended up graduating, I think, cum laude. I think I almost made it to magna by the end, but I kind of had that same thing I did in college of trailing off at the end. I think, I can't remember how, I I, I was on the law review. I don't remember if that was because I, it was like half grades, half writing exam or something. I didn't grade onto it. I think some people could do that, but, but I did well enough to at least be, you know, be able to position myself for that. So, I took pretty well to the the legal stuff. I mean, it, you know, it was similar to taking the LSAT, logical reasoning and all of that. And, uh, you know, I was able to kind of, you know, stay up all night studying and do that sort of thing and, and manage to make it work. Did you stay up all night studying? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was that's my MO. I have always been a procrastinator who burns at both ends when the, the clock is ticking. So... I would kind of <laughs> get things done throughout the semester. But I mean, because it's so different, there's no, you know, all your grade is, you know, pretty much based on this final exam. And so I kind of would, you know, ramp it up at the end and somehow, somehow pull it through sometimes on very little sleep. But, you know, I was young enough to be able to do it at the time. <laughs> Does Harvard uh, do the thing when I was in law school, you could go to the law library and get the final exams for your professor for that class? Uh, the historical final exams. Does, do Harvard uh, professors do that? Like publish the old exams? There was some sort of database and I can't remember how um, exactly it worked. I think, I, I don't remember if it was, you know, professors, you know, they'd release it or what it was, but, but yeah, I was able to do that. And that was actually definitely one thing I did was look at those and kind of have an idea. Maybe with a few exceptions, I think it was all open book, if I remember correctly. So, you know, it was, that kind of I, I I might be completely misremembering. I, I haven't revisited my law school days in some time, but uh, but I do I do remember being able to kind of yeah have an idea of what to expect going in, and you know obviously the one L year especially it's all the issue spotting kind of traditional law school stuff. So um, you know it's fairly straightforward. I find I found that to be pretty come to me pretty easily. I guess. Cool. It sounds like you enjoyed law school. I did. Yeah. I mean, the, I ended up with the law review is really when I got a chance to get to know some people more. And that kind of gave me a home, you know, at Harvard, they have the Gannett house is the law review building. It's cool old building and we'd have bagels and whatnot, you know, in the morning and coffee. So I kind of, that was just my home base. I would just kind of go there every day and, and start my day there and, and study there and go down in the old library and everything. And, uh, you know, it kind of gave me a bit, bit more of a home at the law school. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not friends really, you know, I don't keep up with people from law school. I, I, I 
I don't want to say I'm not friends with anyone. There are some people that I have enjoyed social relationships with over the years, but you know, a couple of people I worked with that sort of thing. But, but I already kind of had, you know, a social group from high school, from college and I was married and all that. So I was kind of a little bit on the outskirts of the social scene there. I was playing rugby, like I said. So, but, but in terms of the, you know, scholastic element of it, you know, I enjoyed going to classes and learning and, and reading and, and taking the exams. And like I said, kind of treating that as a competition. I do wish in retrospect that I would have been more outgoing with meeting professors, uh, you know, doing research projects, that sort of thing. Again, being young and I'm kind of a, I'm someone that if you met me, I could, if I'm in the upbeat mood, you'd think I was very social. If I'm kind of, you know, in my going about my business, you'd think I'm an introvert, but if you get to know me, I'm pretty, pretty social. And But at the time I, you know, it was because I didn't have a, a real scene or anything. I kind of just went about my business by myself and I wish I would have put myself out there more. Interesting. What'd you do your first summer? Like I said, given the international stuff, I was, you know, and I was trying to not just sort of go down a strictly legal path. So I applied to a bunch of public interest sort of related things and Harvard had some sort of program where they would, you know, give you some sort of stipend. I, I didn't end up getting it, but I was sort of relying on that to, to earn a bit of money. Um, but I, I went to, I, I got a call one day. I, was, I remember I was driving around town um, and I got a call from some German guy and I'm like, what on earth? Like I can barely understand this guy. And I'd applied to the United Nations and this guy was calling from Vienna, Austria. And it was the um, office of in, sort of internal investigations. And they they offered me a you know a summer summer job out there and another classmate of mine uh, as well who I didn't uh, even meet until I went out there so I worked in I got to go to Vienna for the summer which was amazing and work at the UN Did your wife go with you she went for a few weeks because she was working full time she's a teacher and so yeah so she, her you know once her summer break uh, you know kicked in which was a little later than mine she came out so I was there for you know 10 11 weeks she was there for a month. You know, we lived in a little one bedroom or not even, it was a studio. The shower was in the kitchen, <laughs> you know, a hilarious little thing, but it was awesome. I mean, getting, you know, being able to be in Europe, you know, on your own. And I just walked around the city and, and really loved that. It wasn't something that I learned a ton that, you know, impacted my future career or anything, but, but it was a great experience to just kind of have the opportunity to do that. And then what'd you do your second summer? So by that point, I had, you know, I was doing the law review. And once you kind of get into that world and getting a little more social, I started to kind of get into this law school mindset. And, you know, everyone was interested in appellate work and working for law firms, of course, and going through the whole law firm uh, hiring process. I, I That wasn't my goal. So I ended up you know, I was applying to jobs with, with the government as well as law firms. And so uh, I got an offer from the DOJ um, federal programs branch is what it's called. Basically, it's like sort of a litigating um, constitutional law related arm. So I did that half the summer and the other half I spent at Kirkland and Ellis in D.C. So I, I was down in D.C., lived with my buddy who I uh, went to BU and was my undergraduate roommate, my best friend. 
Uh, so we lived over in Arlington and, you know, I went downtown and did my job and kind of the same thing. My, my wife came and joined me and his, his then girlfriend, now wife came and joined him and we got, you know, moved to different apartments and, uh, kind of did that thing. But yeah, so I did the split summer. I kind of, you know, in retrospect, it might've been nice to have done the whole summer with the DOJ. I think that would have, you know, given me a, a kind of a deeper in there and, and a kind of a richer experience. Cause as it was, I, I think I did six weeks, but I, I came in, you know, sort of midway through and jumped in and it was great. But, uh, but, you know, again, one of those things where, you know, it was nice, it was tantalizing to be able to earn some money and, and, you know, and, and see that other side of things, see what it was like at a private law firm. And that was valuable too, but might've been nice to do the full summer with the, uh, with the justice department. I see. Um, and so then Kirkland and Ellis just hire you immediately out of school. Yeah. You know, the, um, the, I went through sort of a similar process, you know, the next year and I applied to the honors program with the justice department and I had interviews with several branches, including the one that I'd worked for. And I got through the honors process. Um, Kirkland had given me an offer at the end of the summer, I guess. So I, I knew I had that opportunity and it's, it's a great law firm, you know, for a young lawyer. Um, it really is. And, so I knew I had that, but I wanted to see, you know, what else I could uh, kind of drum up. And I got through the process with the honors program. So I thought that's where I was destined to go. But I guess some number of people every year kind of make it through, but then don't end up, you know, having a position open at the end of it. And that mm-hmm. was me. They never actually communicated that to me, which was a little bit odd and frustrating. But oh, no. uh, but I ended up kind of waiting and, and then deciding to go to Kirkland, which was, you know, a great backup option. Like I said, I mean... And I learned that over the summer. I mean, you know, I'm not I'm not here to give PR by any stretch, but, you know, it is a place that I was able to go and kind of just dive right in and and get to work. And, you know, it wasn't like I was sitting there, you know, doing doc review for for hours and hours and and hoping that someone would ask me to do a little research project. You know, they kind of believe in throwing people in there and, and putting you to work. So do they hire from all over the place or do they hire, you know, Harvard, Stanford, Yale? Yeah, I mean, a lot of there are a lot of Harvard folks, a lot of George. I mean, this is a D.C. office, so obviously there's a geographical kind of bias towards D.C. Uh, A lot of my colleagues went to, you know, schools that weren't kind of in that like top 10 law school, whatever magical list, um, but were, you know, at, at GW and George Mason and other good schools in the area. And I do think that by and large, you know, other folks there are a lot of, a lot of Harvard people, you know, but I don't, I I can't even think that, I don't think that I worked with anyone from, from Stanford or Yale actually come to think of it. Uh, at least that was sort of in my class. Um, but a a good number of people came from Harvard and I don't know if that's one of those things where it kind of, there's some group effect, but, but yeah, there were like seven or eight people that I ended up working with that were, you know, my classmates, many of whom I knew already, uh, before going to work there. So, so, but you know, there's, there's a mix. There are definitely, a, you know, a pretty wide mix of backgrounds there. Once you're there, uh, at the firm, you're hired at the same time as some guy from George Mason. Do you have advantages over him politically or, or, or are you guys exactly equals, um, when you start as associates there? I think there can be some advantage if you have like a, an actual, you know, relationship or an in with a partner, say, um, you, you really know somebody or, 
you know, maybe there's some, oh, hey, this guy went to my school kind of thing. Although, honestly, I wonder if it, you know, might have been even more of a connection from an undergraduate thing. But really, no, because I mean, we all know how this works, right? I mean, Harvard gets your foot in the door. It gets you the interview. It, it gives you sort of an automatic credential, and that's great. But once you're there, it's all about your work. And to be honest, you know, if you're hired from George Mason, you're probably one of the best people in the class at George Mason. You worked your butt off. And you're good. And so, sure. you know, I never felt like there was any kind of a, you know, we're going to let this guy coast through. And, and like I said, I wasn't the only one. It's not like I had any special background. I didn't I didn't end up clerking. You know, that that might have been something that, you know, if you'd spent time, especially if you'd done, you know, worked for an, a, a prestigious, you know, appellate judge or something that might have obviously given you some more opportunities. But but no, I, I didn't. I, I mean, the place really is a, a meritocracy in the sense that they want people who are going to put in the hours and do good work, you know, and, and that's what kind of moves you up the ranks there. I do think that. So, uh, I didn't notice any, any special treatment or anything, although I did end up kind of having good advantages, but I think it was largely, largely happenstance. I guess, um, I had heard some things about partner tracks at some law firms being kind of restricted to, you know, the Harvards of the world, but you're, you seem like you don't think that was happening at Kirkland anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I would be willing to consider it if, you know, depending on what the numbers show, you know, but sure, right. um, kind of from my experience, um, I can't think of specifics, but I know I know there are, I can definitely think of several partners that were, you know, didn't come from from Harvard or, or, or similar schools um, that came from. I mean, obviously, all excellent law schools and again, people that were incredibly high achieving and talented. So. You know, the partner track idea, I don't know to what extent I or any of my other classmates or, you know, or, or people that, you know, associates were on or not on the partner track specifically. I mean, I, you know, I got hints at times that, you know, hey, we don't want you to just be a functional employee here. We want you to kind of step up and be a leader and and, you know, take control of cases. And I was given, like I said, you know, immense opportunity to do that. But there was never a, you know, you're going to do this and somebody else is going to do that. It was all based upon the kind of work you were putting in and the the talent that you were putting out there. So, you know, I, I really feel like, you know, for anyone who, regardless of where you end up, again, you, you want to get into the best school you can. And it's not just about, you know, looking at the rankings, but you want to get in the best situation, the best school you can, because that's going to give you the most opportunity. But from there, it's really what you make of it. What kind of uh, cases were you working on? How, how much were you working? I did general commercial litigation. You know, I also had a chance to do several pro bono cases, uh, immigration related mostly, um, which I will say Kirkland was great about not just having that, but, you know, promoting it and then not even blinking about you billing on that um, and counting it to your bonus and whatever else. Um, I, I build hundreds and hundreds of hours to, you know, helping refugees avoid deportation, you know, which yeah. had nothing to do with earning money for the the firm. So, I, you know, another thing that I, I do give them credit for, I, I spent a lot of time working on uh, insurance cases. We had Kirkland gets called in a lot for, you know, this is going to actually go to trial type cases, even though most of them still don't, or, you know, bad PR type cases. And we did we represented nationwide in the Hurricane Katrina litigation and then Hurricane Ike litigation afterwards. 
And so I spent a lot of time on that. They're all individual cases, similar legal issues, but all with their own facts. And so, you know, that was a place where I got to do a lot of the kind of nuts and bolts of trial law and, you know, discovery and depositions and all that stuff. So I did a lot of that. And then I worked on just, you know, several larger cases where I was, you know, one of many people kind of, you know, manning some, some smaller element of the case. But, uh, I did a I did a wide variety of stuff, you know, all litigation related. Yeah, it was pretty pretty broad, pretty general. I didn't really have any sort of special area I worked in or anything like that. Did you have the crazy litigation schedule where it was, you know, hundred hours a week and then get some time off kind of thing or at times. At times. I mean, obviously, like I said, these smaller cases were interesting. I did a small case in Pennsylvania. It was like a we we had a few private equity uh, clients in, in our office. And then they would, you know, own some company and it was a fairly small company. And so they'd have some litigation that we were handling, but they didn't want to throw 50 lawyers at it. And so, you know, I would have a chance to be there and, you know, I got to go do a trial in, in Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh. And that was crazy, you know, building up to it, doing that. Obviously a few of the bigger trials I was on, there are times when it was all hands on deck, but by and large, I would say, my experience with it wasn't as crazy as I, I've heard, you know, some others that I wasn't billing 80 hours a week consistently. I think for the most part, and maybe they wish I would have billed more, but for the most part, I was in the like 1900 to 2200 type of range, you know, any given year. And, you know, frankly, by the time I was, had done it a little bit, I decided I wasn't going to go out of my way to try to run up my hours just to do that. And, I was going to let the quality of my work kind of stand on itself and I was going to do my job and do what I was asked to and look for good opportunities. But, you know, I, I'd never, I never felt the need to do that personally, as much as I did feel like I worked too much. Cause I, I did feel that way. Certainly, you know, it was probably not uh, the, the horror stories that we've heard. And a lot of times people spend so much time in the office because, they waste a lot of time. I was in and out. It was like I was working when I was there. I didn't take long lunch breaks. I didn't mess around with that stuff. I was I was there to work. And when I was done, I was going home and I wasn't looking for work to do on the weekends. Maybe that wasn't the best way to get ahead. But, you know, I wanted to make sure I continued to live my life. Yeah, it makes sense. Work expands to fill available time. So if you are willing to let yourself work every weekend and be in the office 12 hours a day, you know, you can do that. And feel busy the whole time. Absolutely. You might also be able to just get it all done Monday through Friday, nine to five. If you really, you know, got down to business when you got to the office, it wasn't always possible, but you know, yeah. you had to, you have to kind of make that decision and it probably depends on your situation, you know, in any given law firm and what you're doing at that time and whatever. And, you know, there are times when I probably should have been more, you know, aggressive with putting myself out there to do more work or something. If I wanted to really you know, move up the ladder. But, you know, I felt like even when I, when I left, I wasn't, like I said, I, I wasn't like, I wasn't slacking, but I wasn't billing huge hours. I wasn't, you know, going above and beyond in that regard. Um, but I felt like I was doing good work and I felt like that was, you know, reflected in my conversations and reviews and whatever else. Uh, you know, even though I wasn't, I'm sure I wasn't leading the pack uh, amongst my sort of peers, I felt like the, you know, the quality of my work and, you know, that was, was, reflected in what people were telling me, you know, here's where you can improve. Here's where you're doing good. It wasn't like cracking the whip on billing more hours. 
So you're there, you're, sounds like you're successful doing work that you believe in, which I'm sure then must turn out to be pretty damn good work. You're presumably making decent money. You're paying back your loans. I get, it sounded like you, you had to borrow money for law school. Is that right? Yeah. So I was fortunate in the end because first of all, I had a spouse that was working. So okay. I didn't have to borrow money for living expenses. You know, I, I borrowed for the tuition, but one thing, Harvard doesn't do uh, scholarships, but they have a pretty generous sort of financial aid. It's based on your parents' earnings unless you've been gone for, you know, quite some time. Uh, you know, my folks are successful, but not rich by any means. And so I was able to, you know, tamp that down in that way. And so, and then I earned money during the summer. So I had, I mean, I had like, I think 85 grand in debt coming out, which is probably pretty good, yeah, all things bad. considered. Yeah. And I, what I did was, I mean, I've always lived, you know, for the most part being pretty, pretty frugal. I mean, I love to travel. I love to eat good food. I love to, you know, pay for experiences, but I'm also just a total cheapskate. Like, like I shop at thrift shops. I don't care. I shopped at thrift shops when I was working at the law firm. I, I'm not, <laughs> I try not to be wasteful. I want to spend my money on the right things. And so I, I paid my loans down like right off the bat. And I didn't understand anything about finances. I didn't understand taxes. I didn't know. I didn't care about 401ks and all that crap at first. And then I finally like buckled down and, and, and dealt with it and learned it all. But even though I kind of got off slowly on that side, the one thing I didn't do was go and waste my money. I didn't go buy an expensive car. We lived in, you know, modest enough uh, apartments and I took the metro and yeah. all that. And and so I, I just like I not I knocked the loans out like very quickly, actually. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, they'll loan you money for living expenses, even if you don't need the living expenses. Yeah. And, yep. you know, I think a lot of students starting off don't realize that they can actually turn down some of those loans. And um, instead, they take the money and then they feel like they're rich for three years um, with the new car and everything else. Yeah, it's so easy even during school to to blow through money because you know, depending on where you're at, it may not be super expensive, just your base living expenses, but you end up with this leftover money that's all being borrowed and you go blow it. I mean, I, I, I would say the one thing, you know, as I've become a, a curmudgeonly old man, um, I always try to tell people, you know, pay attention, learn this stuff up front because your time is your money. I mean, you, you know, all the time that you spend working to earn money, that money that you spend is your time and you can't get it back other than by dedicating more time. And, you know, fortunately for me, obviously I was able to earn, you know, a top of the market salary as a young associate. And I was able to pocket a lot of cash even while paying down my loans, you know, relatively, I'm, I'm hardly rich, but it freed me up enough to be able to feel comfortable about, you know, making my own decisions for myself and not feeling like, had the silver handcuffs on or whatever bound to that job if that wasn't what I wanted to do. And it all starts when you're, you're in school and, and yeah. right up through, you know, your working days, you know, and making a decision to live that way. So, so you got the loans paid off completely in your four and a half years at Kirkland. Yeah. I don't remember exactly when I finished it off, but like, but before you left, it was, Oh yeah. Well before I, I, I was letting the bank account run up. And then I just remember one day, 
sitting down with my wife and kind of talking about it and saying, all right, we're going to just do this. And I remember, I think I stroked the check for like $45,000 at one point. It felt so good. And we just knocked it out. And it was like, that's done and gone. And now I can focus on, you know, I, I maxed out the 401k every year and all that stuff and, and kind of focused on, on building, building the assets. Like I said, when I had the chance, because I I knew that I probably wasn't going to stay in that long term. I always had this feeling like, I wanted to kind of cast myself out and and figure things out on my own and and not kind of be climbing a ladder. And again, it's the job was great. And for the right person, it's a great job. But for me, it wasn't what I wanted to do my do with my life. And so I, you know, I tried to make it work for me by by, you know, taking the biggest advantage of it, which was the chance to earn a lot of money. So this is a bit of a tangent, but uh, you said you figured out the personal finance stuff a little bit later in life, um, your you know, 401k and what that all means and everything. Uh, do you have any resources that you could recommend for somebody, uh, a book or anything for somebody who's just starting to think about the importance of this stuff? Yeah, you know, actually where I went, I kind of was, I'm like an internet researcher. So okay. <laughs> I, uh, I, I was Googling around and whatever. And uh, the place I ended up is Bogleheads.com, which is an odd sounding place, but uh, it's Jack Bogle is the Vanguard's founder and Vanguard, you know, low cost uh, investment vehicles and B-O-G-L-E, right? Yes. Yes. B-O-G-L-E heads. Um, I think it's dot org maybe, okay. um, but their, their forum has a lot of resources and they have sort of like a, like a Wikipedia type of a deal with just the basics of all the tax stuff and and all the different investment vehicles and how to optimize where you put your different investments and all this stuff. I kind of started doing it, you know, maybe my my second year or so in. I remember the guy that I actually had my sort of entry, you know, introduction to the law firm kind of thing with. It was me and one other guy. And he already had kids and owned a house and all that. And he's sitting there asking all these questions. And I couldn't have cared less. And I talked to him like a year or two later. And I, I was like, all right, man, you know, I remember we were in that meeting together like, tell me what I missed. <laughs> and I kind of started doing it and started reading about it, learning about it. And I really got serious when we decided we were going to have a kid. And that was the point where I said, all right, I need to, I need to get that in order. Like I said, I started playing baseball. I started getting healthy. I started running, eating better. Like I just kind of changed the way I was living. Cause I was going down this path of being like a kind of sloppy, uh, lawyer, just sitting there at my desk all day with, <laughs> with regards to my whole life. So I, that was kind of when I decided to really take control of things and, and kind of choose my own destiny a little bit. So let's talk about leaving Kirkland. Did you know in advance? Was it six months, a year, two years? How long did you know that you were leaving before you left? Well, it was a sort of creeping. I mean, I guess I could call it a creeping thing. It was I kind of always knew that I wanted to pursue something else. Um, I considered for a while trying to get a clerkship at some point. Uh, kind of pursued that a little bit, but not really kind of full on. I thought at times about trying to work in, you know, legal academia, but I didn't really have anything I was passionate enough about to feel like I could, you know, go and do this sort of have the motivation to to sit there and, and drive myself to write articles and research and, and write and do the things that were necessary for it. So I figured that probably wasn't the path for me. And eventually got to a point where I just felt like, I've got kids on the way, you know, we had, had my daughter, I guess, probably three years or so in to the law firm and creeping up on 30 years of age. And I just kind of realized at some point I needed to basically just 
if I couldn't find a job that I specifically wanted, which I applied to a few jobs, had a few interviews, like uh, sort of public interest um, related things and nothing really turned out. I looked at other firms, small firms, just kind of see if that would make sense for me. Nothing really took. So I basically just reached a point where my wife and I said, you know, we're going to just basically quit, you know, take any opportunity we can and just kind of wrap this period up. And I kind of decided to wait until I reached the end of a year so I could get my bonus for that year and kind of finish out my cases I was on and feel like I'd finished that chapter and, and then move on. So that was the kind of broader thing. Obviously, there are more specifics underneath it, but. Do you want to talk about any of that? I mean, were you, yeah, yeah. you were unhappy somehow. Yeah. You know, it was, it wasn't like when I look back, it's not like there was anything wrong per se with the job. And I know a lot of people that were happy in there. I looked ahead at the people that were partners and I, I kind of saw, you know, it wasn't the life I wanted. You know, these are people that loved working. They love their job and they love being there a lot. And I enjoyed the job. I got to a point where I really enjoyed it towards the end because I had freed myself from feeling like I had to do it. You know, any kind of social pressure to do it. And what am I doing? How could you give this up? I kind of had given up on that. And then I just was able to enjoy it and appreciate that I had, uh, you know, a lot of flexibility. I earned good money. I had a lot of sort of professional ability to, to do, you know, do things that were challenging and new. It wasn't just sort of sitting there drudgery, but you know, even in the course of doing that, I started feeling like there was an end in sight. So I, I kind of looked around for a specific thing to, you know, I needed something to pull me away. And I, I sort of oddly, like I said, I was falling back in love with baseball. And weirdly, that is kind of what took. And the reason we ended up in Denver is I uh, met a guy who has a little museum out here. And he was kind of running it by himself, but it's a sort of a self-funded operation. And Baseball museum? Baseball museum, yeah. Right near Coors Field. What's it called? It's called the National Ballpark Museum. Oh, cool. Is it's it, an interesting spot, yeah. It's about ballparks? Yeah, it's a, he had a personal collection of artifacts from, you know, all the old parks, the, you know, the original kind of major league ballparks, the, you know, your Fenways and Yankee stadiums, but then all the other ones, Shive Park in Philadelphia, Forbes Field in Pittsburgh, kind of actual artifacts from these parks, like the arch window from Forbes Field. That's the only one remaining. Uh -huh. um, so it's kind of cool. I, I actually felt like it, I still do. I feel like it's kind of a legitimate, you know, piece of the history of the game and kind of, you know, social, you know, American society that's, goes beyond just sort of, oh, this player was great or something. It's it's about the parks themselves. And uh, so I kind of thought that was interesting and talked to him. And I decided to come out here and basically volunteer uh, working at it and kind of running it. And that ended up not working out in the end. But I, I did it for a couple months and it was an excuse to move out here. In the meantime, I also saw a job application for part-time writing at MLB Trademers, which is sort of the uh, it's it's like an industry um, clearinghouse for news and rumors related to transactions, which is huge in baseball. It's twenty four seven news cycle all year round. So I that and it was one of the things that I read all the time and was very interested in. Being a lawyer, the contracts and everything kind of just made sense. And so I, I got that job. Wrote in, you know, did the comp writing kind of a writing competition. It's like writing under the law review or something, and. Uh, started doing that just once a week. So that was kind of, we just kind of had this weird little setup out here. I basically 
dipped into my personal assets to, you know, have a period of, of working and exploring. And we hiked and camped and, you know, kind of just set up a whole new existence. And I've changed immensely as a person over the course of it. And, and like I said, I kind of figured it like, you know, I could have left my job six months earlier, but I plugged on, earned a little bit of extra money and that kind of funded this sort of exploration period. And uh, when was that again that you first started with MLB Trade Rumors? Oh man, the exact year. Let's see. It would have been 2013, I guess. Yeah, it must have been. Okay. Because yeah, I think I've just passed my third year anniversary. Yeah, so it was like February of that year and we just kind of packed up and moved out here and your wife got a new job teaching. She didn't actually, because we had our daughter at the time. Uh, and so we decided to hold off on that. She had been doing part-time stuff there. She's done some part-time stuff here. Weirdly enough, now we're both bloggers. I don't even know how this happened, but okay. uh, she essentially is a blogger now too. She's part-time uh, writing about teaching. And so, yeah, we just kind of like self-funded the whole thing and came out here and, and decided to see what would happen. And once the museum, you know, I, I did the museum for a while and, and, we renovated it and changed it and changed the name. And, but you know, it's a small little museum and it was, you know, it just didn't work out particularly, but I'm, it was fun and it was interesting and I'm glad I did it. And then I had a period of several months where I was like, okay, well now what am I going to, what am I going to do? I'm doing this part-time thing. I would fill in shifts here and there. And then I started researching and writing about baseball kind of, you know, on my own and writing pieces for the site. And eventually that kind of turned into a full-time job. The podcast started in 2014, it looks like. You were the host the whole time? Yeah, that was one of the things when I when I first went from being part-time to full-time. Uh, the owner of the site, Tim Durkis, he founded it himself. His story is not totally different from mine. He started doing it himself while he was working a regular job. And it just kind of gradually turned into something. And so by that point, he had kind of diversified, started sites on uh, basketball and football. And so he had, you know, he was hiring people for that. And so he kind of rearranged things a bit and put me into the kind of full-time shift on baseball. And part of the idea at the time was I had mentioned to him, hey, I, you know, it'd be kind of cool to do a podcast. I'd be interested in doing that if you, if you want to, you know, talk about it. And so when I started up uh, full-time, that was one of the things that we kind of had on the ledger and I think it was that summer after I started full time that we, you know, kind of decided to pull the trigger and, and go with it and, and see how it goes and whatever. And, you know, it's turned into a weekly thing that we've done ever since. So it's kind of a side part of my job. But usually every Wednesday evening, I try to try to harangue someone into hopping on the show and and we, we record it and and publish it on Thursday morning. So it's fun. It's a great chance to talk to people in the industry talk to some players, um, agents and executives and a lot of writers, um, that sort of thing. So it's been fun. It's been a totally different experience for me. It's a lot about the business of baseball, right? The, yeah, it's the, all the site I yeah. mean, and the podcast. It's a, a bit of an inside kind of audience. I would say so. I mean, we have a, a pretty varied now. I don't, you know, the podcast is, I don't, I don't even really know exactly. Probably, the podcast is, is fans, you know, that, that listen in and probably are hardcore readers that people that are really interested in, in all the, all the nuances of this stuff. But yeah. the readership is, is very broad. It's sort of the industry standard, you know, executives, agents, players, because we compile all the information. 
you know, we we only rely on reporters that we have reason to believe are reliable. We kind of collate everything, put it in one place. And then our job is to, to assess all this information as it comes in, put it in context, understand the market, understand the rules, you know, and, and convey all this to people. So there's that insider. It's a real industry readership. You know, it could have been like a publication in the old days that it was like a newsletter that went to industry people. But um, these days, obviously, anyone can read on the site. And so we have obviously the vast majority of our readers are fans. And most of them are very attentive fans, the type that want to know when, you know, the 25th guy in the roster has been designated for assignment to call up some <laughs> top prospect. Yeah. They really want to know that. So it's a broad group. And some of them are like really serious baseball fans. Others, I think, are, you know, more fans of a single team. But it's an interesting mix. And it's kind of it's it's different because it's not you know, the site is all baseball and it's all transactions. You know, we're not writing about who's better than who we, we put into context using statistics and all that, but it's really about what happened, why, what does it all mean next? And it's kind of a fun little world. You must get a lot of like fantasy baseball listeners, daily fantasy sports listeners. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're gamblers, gamblers, yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean the, you know, we don't cater specifically to fantasy baseball and some of the other um, outlets that do similar stuff to what we do. You would read information about, you know, this guy's uh, hot right now. This guy's out for three days. You know, we don't really do that. I mean, we kind of try to focus on the substance of what matters to the transactional stuff. That's kind of the touchstone for us. Actual like team organizational stuff. Yeah. So news item, does this news item impact a play an actual transactional you know the control rights over a player does it does it say something about what this team might do next that's kind of like we kind of want everything to to connect back to that it's not oh this is fun and interesting or hey this guy's playing well right now you know unless it's relevant to the you know kind of the transactional stuff and so we try to stick to that because it served the site well to this point and the site is wildly successful you know in its niche and so you know, we try to stick to that. That being said, obviously, just like statistical people go to fan graphs and read all about the statistical analysis, a lot of those guys are doing it because they're fantasy players, some of whom are doing it for money. And so there is obviously a tie in there, but we don't really do, we don't cater to that specifically, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. No, that makes sense. And that does sound like a lot more interesting project. I would imagine that writing about fantasy sports or catering toward fantasy sports could get pretty tedious after a while. Yeah, I mean it's similar. They're they're obviously closely related, but I think, you know, when you're when you're talking about the fantasy side, there's a whole different game at play there. You know, there's all different levels to these games, right? So there's the transactional game is a game relating to the game on the field. The fantasy game is another layer on top of that and it's kind of a different angle, but yeah, for me it's it's less interesting. I play we have a we have a league for our for the site, you know, the the people that write for the site and a few others. But it's the only one I do. I'm not like a real a, a big fantasy player, although I have kind of access to all the information that you would want to. Okay. What's uh what's next for you after Major League Baseball or MLBTradeRumors.com? Um you got something else on the horizon or is this a long-term thing for you, you think? I don't know. I mean, you know, the good thing is I have a great boss, uh, you know, someone who I kind of believe in. Um, he's a, he's a good person and, you know, I'm, I really am kind of admire him for creating this thing and, and running it. And he doesn't, he's not out there to just, you know, 
make it big and sell it off or something. He kind of, you know, it's like any small business owner. And uh, so I kind of admire that. You know, I don't have specific aspirations so much right now. I've thought about a lot of different things. I've told him that as well. You know, I'm interested in a lot of things and become much more attuned and interested in the environment and consumerism and things like this that are kind of, you know, my personal beliefs. And I could imagine eventually starting something or doing something else. But, you know, right now I've, I've sort of been letting life come to me a little bit. Like I said, enjoying the outdoors, hiking, skiing, rock climbing, you know, stuff that I never did previously and raising my kids. This job allows me to be at home, you know, see my kids grow up in a way that I wouldn't in any other job. And so, you know, that's going to change when my daughter's going to kindergarten next year, that's going to start to change a lot. So I'm going to, I'm going to play it all by ear, you know, uh, rather than sort of set some goal. I don't, I don't need to be a partner at a law firm or or whatever it might be. What about a sports agent? Sports agent. Yeah. That's, I've thought about that before. Yeah. I don't know. That's such a marketing thing. You have to go out there and get these guys to buy into you. I'm not sure that I have that in my blood or not, but I could imagine working for an agency as kind of a behind the scenes guy or, or working for a team as a you know, team lawyer, or transactional guy, but I haven't really felt an urge to pursue anything like that yet. So, you know, for now, I'm kind of still enjoying it. I have opportunity with this job to, you know, I'm doing the podcast. I can write, write an article. I can call someone up and say, Hey, you know, this is Jeff from MLB trade rumors. Love to interview. You know, I have a lot of outlets, you know, by working for this company, which it sounds strange, but it, it is a blog, but within the industry, it is, you know, it is a recognized uh, entity. So, you know, it's, there's enough there for me now. And I enjoy what I have now enough that I'm not really looking per se. Cool. Um, You're working on any interesting articles coming up on the website? Oh, man, I'm so I'm burnt out because we just did our we review the offseason of every team we and it takes a long time, every single move they made, you know, over the winter. So we've just finished that. So honestly, I'm kind of like, I've got that off my plate now. So there's nothing, nothing on the horizon. Uh, You know, we've been looking to improve the podcast and we did a survey of reader or listeners and uh, we've, we've got a lot of ideas. So I'm going to kind of start to drill in on that a little bit. This is actually a quiet time in the season because there's not a lot of moves being made. So hopefully I'll be able be ready to ramp up with some kind of new project, new ideas, you know, in advance of the trade deadline this summer, which is sort of our next major uh, period of activity. How many games do you think you'll make it to this year? I don't make it to a lot. I, don't, I live two miles from Coors Field, but um, we'll, we'll go to a couple. The great thing about Denver is, which is an amazing city, you know, we can just ride the bike down there. Uh, the trouble is that, you know, because I'm working at kind of a lot of the times the night games I can't get to. If I can get to a night game, the the kids just don't last. I mean, it's a 640 start, so yeah. that that's just not going to work for them at this age, but I'm hoping to get to some. I play on the weekend, so that that wipes out the Sunday game usually. Yeah. So I'll I'll make it to a couple here and there. And I watch a lot while I'm working, which is another nice nice perk of the job. I figure it's it's only only to the benefit of the company that I actually watch a little baseball from time to time. Of course, Jeff Todd, thank you for coming on the show. Your Twitter handle is j a underscore todd t o d d. Anything else you want to share with the listeners? No, I mean, I think I think I, I, I kind of conveyed it, but just to emphasize it, you know, it's you got people that are going to law school, thinking about it, taking the taking the LSAT, you know, don't just get sucked into the world of the law school or taking the test or whatever, you know, think for yourself, 
plan something out and, and don't be afraid to, to bet on yourself from time to time. Same time, you also have to be realistic and practical and, and make the sacrifices that are needed to, to put you in a position to be able to make those kinds of choices. So, Awesome. Well, thanks again, Jeff. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Talk to you soon. All right.